Welcome back to another episode of the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with myself, your host as ever, Alex Connor, where we talk everything training, nutrition, and lifestyle collectively. First up, as always, the Fearless Training United Academy is exclusively available for all of you now, 24-7, anywhere in the world. It is the Netflix of fitness, guys. Subscribe at any time, cancel at any time, doubt you will. Lots and lots of key information educating you on how to control, understand, and manipulate your training and nutrition to improve your body composition once and for all, and you can get off the hamster wheel and stop being and falling prey to a lot of the misconceptions out there. Uh, Links are in the bio as always, guys. Any questions or queries, let me know. Okay, so my guest this week is Dr. Michael Gradner, and he is a sleep specialist, and he believes that healthy sleep is necessary for good health, and sleep is important for cardiovascular health, obesity, diabetes, and psychological well-being. And that is what we delve into today. He has a plethora and a multitude of experience and knowledge. He works with a variety of organizations and um, very well-established institutions um, regarding sleep, Uh, We have some very, very thought-provoking conversations. Um, Sleep is something that I am incredibly interested in. Uh, As I spend more and more time within the realms of health and fitness, I realize how important it is, and it never ceases to amaze me uh, of the research and the findings and how it can affect um, every single part of the body. And to give you an idea uh, of what we go into in this episode is we look at the research that Michael focuses on. We look at sleeping for athletes versus general populations. We look at the most common problems um, that affect sleep and how to remedy and fix them. A lot of them are a lot simpler than we think. We also talk about Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep gets a mention in there too, a book that I've recommended to a lot of my clients and I've popped out there on my social media a few times within my vlogs too. Again, a value-packed episode, guys. I really think you're going to love this one. I certainly did. Definitely a round two on the cards uh, with Michael and perhaps some of his fellow researchers too. And the last thing to mention, guys, if you want more information from myself, you like my content, you like what I do, make sure you leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Spotify, or any platform you are listening it on right now. It helps the channel grow. It helps us spread this better information. And for those of you who are unaware, I also upload four YouTube videos a week this one included. I'm very active on Instagram and other social media, putting out quality information all for you so you can improve your health, lifestyle, body composition, etc. Okay, guys, without further ado, please enjoy this recent conversation between myself and Dr. Michael Grantner. All right. So, Michael, uh, welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast, my friend. I appreciate uh, your time and, and coming on today. How are you? Great, great. Thanks for having me. I think this is uh, a great chance to talk to people and uh, really help make a difference with real people. Yeah, no, 100%. And, you know, for those who are familiar with the podcast and those listeners out there, who are familiar with myself, they know how passionate I am about sleep for the clients listening. They know how frustrated I can be about sleep. So I think this will be, like you said, a, a really, really appropriate opportunity to share some you know, very, very valuable knowledge and perhaps slay some misconceptions about sleep, but also put it into perspective with, most importantly, some really key, actionable, real-world takeaways. Um, 
So Michael, first of all, perhaps for those who are not aware about you and, and who you are and what you do, could you tell us how you got into the field that you're currently working in or why you're passionate about it and, and how you actually help people um, go move forward and improve their sleep? So yeah, I, I started working in this field you know, way back in college um, where, where I didn't know this was a job that someone could have. I just knew sleep was really interesting to learn about. Um, I didn't know that, you know, this, that this whole world existed. Um, and so then I started volunteering in a sleep research lab um, and sort of went from there. And so, so my background is, so I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, um, which means that um, my training is, in, is, is on the clinical side in terms of um, diagnosing and treating a whole range of psychological and mental issues, but I, I've always focused on sleep because that was the most interesting to me. And then on the scientific side, you know, I, I you know, my day job mostly is sleep research, where, you know, where I, I do some teaching, but also, you know, mostly studies and, and research and, and running a lab and, you know, writing grants and papers and, and contributing to, you know, the scientific output. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's my world is, is studying sleep, asking scientific questions, running studies, seeing patients, uh, and then also doing some education and, and developing programs uh, where I can. I mean, I also do some work with athletics programs um, and, and, and other companies and, and tech development and other stuff to really help bridge what we know about sleep from the laboratory into the real world where we can really make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and you, you do. You have quite a, a versatility and um, a wider range of, of skill sets, which I think is important these days as we move forward. You know, we talk a lot about um, specialization. You know, people say, I'm a specialist these days. And of course, we don't want to be generalized, but we do need general knowledge, I think, to bridge the gaps between fields to actually put the pieces together. And I think that's a bit of a gray area. I know that a lot of sleep researchers generally, they can also come from a um, sort of a more neuroscience background, if you like, um, like Matthew Walker, yeah. from my understanding, which yeah. I, we'll, we'll touch base on. But it's it, again, it's how it all sort of links up and it comes to a point, I guess, where, again, you need that multitude of information because you can better communicate it. So perhaps something I'd, I'd really love to do, and it might sound really simple, um, but could yeah. you, before we move on, let's just put some context in for the listeners, define what sleep is, um, I guess, in a more mechanistic and clinical sense and uh, kind of put that into, I guess, a more absorbable definition for most people. Because when you ask people, it might sound silly, but what is sleep? People just go, it's something you need because, you know, you just have to have it. You have to rest. It's like, yeah, but, but why? Um, perhaps could you share with us something or a definition that you usually explain uh, or put it across to people so they can get a bit of a better perspective of it or perhaps frame it differently? That's a great question. So, so there's a couple different angles you can take. One angle you can take is why do we sleep? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that question, you know, a lot, a lot of scientists, you, know, you talk to a sleep scientist and say, why do we sleep? And, and we all know that the correct answer to that question is, oh, we don't still know exactly why we sleep. But that's not true. We actually do know why we sleep. We sleep because it's a fundamental part of our biology. We sleep for the same reason we breathe. Uh, we sleep for the same reason we eat and drink water. I mean, sleep is a biological requirement for human life. That's just, uh -huh. that's just how we're built. 
Um, that's why we do it. We do, we're, we do it because we're built to require it. But that, that's not really what people are asking. And when we say we don't know exactly why, is what, what we're saying is we still don't fully understand all of the different things that sleep does. But that's not a problem. We still don't understand all of the functions of the skin. We, don't still, we still don't, much less all of the functions of the brain, much less understand all the functions of the frontal lobes of the brain. Like, these, these are rabbit holes that go down deep. And just because we don't know everything doesn't mean we don't know anything. And so we do know that sleep is a fundamental part of our biology. And, and why? And what, what, are, what are the things that it does? Um, two ways to understand that uh, might be in terms of getting to your question of how, how would you define sleep? Um, the first way I would talk about this, especially for listeners to help wrap their head around why it is that we sleep and, and what is it? Um, sleep represents the overlap of two, um, two separate but related processes. One is the rest activity rhythm, and the other one is the biological 24-hour circadian clock. And, and so these two things are overlapping with each other so that our rest activity rhythm overlaps where the rest period is in the nighttime of our 24-hour circadian clock. And, and these, so what this means is um, many species on Earth have rest activity rhythms. Even if they don't sense light and darkness, um, evolution figured out a very long time ago that you can't do everything all the time at peak efficiency biologically and optimize survival at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so every organism, I don't know about every organism, every organism that's been studied, even down to microscopic worms, um, have rest activity cycles where uh, these rest activity cycles isn't just they go for a while and they stop and they go and they stop. It's that there are these planned, biologically necessary periods where you're going and then pulling back. And, and those and those periods are important because just like it's, it's, it's just not efficient to change your car's oil while you're still driving, um, it's just not efficient to perform lots of different biological functions while you're still actively um, engaging with the environment. Uh, and there are a lot of biological systems that are just more efficient to do when you're more cut off. And so they aggregate together into these rest activity cycles where you need to be active, like humans, for example, need activity to do things like find food, find shelter, interact with each other, reproduce. All these sorts of things happen when we're awake. But while we're engaging with the environment and taking in information and putting out information, we're not as good at integrating, sorting, maintaining, things like that. You know, we're not, you know, when, when, when the stores open and the customers are in the halls and the cashiers are at the register, we're not optimally functional at restocking shelves too. And so that's why we have these rhythms. Now, they could happen at any time, but it's no coincidence that they also happen at night. So because we also have these 24-hour circadian cycles. Uh -huh. So lots of systems in the body work on 24-hour cycles. It's just... It, why? Well, there's lots of potential reasons why. But um, one reason is that, again, evolution's not an idiot. Um, one thing that's consistent about life on Earth for billions of years, uh, I mean, Pangaea existed and split apart. Dinosaurs came and went. Ice ages came and went. The one thing that has never changed is the light-dark cycle. 
the, the Earth spins on its axis and rotates around the sun in, in a perfectly predictable way, or almost perfectly, at least biologically. And rather than ignore this fact, we, we developed um, biological relationships with light. Even plants who have no eyes have relationships with light. The light cycle becomes part of how they function. And so light-dark cycles um, sort of gave rise to this, this, these 24-hour systems. Again, since all systems don't operate perfectly 100% of the time, having these cycles helps them be in sync with each other, especially because these cycles are essentially set to an external clock being the sun. We have mm -hmm. our own internal clock that we evolved that's about 24 hours, but we still use the sun and light to help keep them in sync with each other. Um, and so sleep represents, um, to some degree, this, this overlap between the light-dark cycle of our body. So, so we've evolved a system where our rest activity rhythm coincides with the night. Well, we can't see very well. When it's better to pull back and, and we disengage from the environment in predictable ways, which we call sleep stages, um, that allow our body to do the work that it's just not very good at doing while we're interacting and functional with the environment. So I know that was, that was kind of going on for a bit, but I, I, I'm hoping it helps people understand that sleep isn't just you ran out of gas for your day and now you're just refilling, like, you know, like you're just resting. It's actually part of this much larger context of the fundamental building blocks of our, of our human biology. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's super interesting stuff. And again, no, please go off and, and extrapolate and you know, <laughs> no, I explain it more because I mean, this is why we have this, um, this beautiful platform as a podcast yeah. an opportunity for us to do more long form content. And my listeners know I really like to get into the weeds because again, I think we're doing ourselves and our listeners an injustice. If we oversimplify things, I think there's other platforms for that like Instagram, YouTube, etc. And again, I really like to get into the weeds. So no, I think that's absolutely great. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that. And even with that explanation, like you said, we start to see this is not like most things in the body, a one dimensional thing. It is multifaceted, right. you know, and it's not fair to go, Oh, it's, it's this, you know, it's, it's just one thing. It's like, no, 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 let's, let's, Again, it's about critical thinking, right? We, we want to think of things not binary, but again, we want to think of things from a larger perspective. So I think that's a really good um, sort of place to springboard into perhaps now with that context of yeah. listeners focusing on some of the things that you do within your research, um, and that is the interrelation uh, between behavioral aspects and how they actually affect other systems and processes in the bodies, um, like cardiovascular disease, di diabetes, obesity, etc. Perhaps could we unpack how sleep actually relates to those things uh, and strategies that you put in place to to overcome them? Or perhaps even first, I guess, why sleep even affects and can contribute to you know an increase of those health risks you know within the body because a lot of people struggle with them. And again, it's something that is overlooked. It's like everyone's trying to, you know, pump medicine into the body. And it's like, well, okay, maybe that is something we still need to do, obviously, from, again, other physiological perspectives. But again, we're neglecting this one thing that is free. Um, <laughs> that could be, you know, one of the biggest contributing factors to improving those health markers. So could we unpack that a little bit, please? Sure. Um, let me last list off a few pathways linking sleep with 
this constellation of obesity and cardiovascular disease, diabetes, they're all sort of related to each other. It's all this cardiometabolic disease. So there's a few pathways involved. One is, um, one has to do with, and I'll get to the behavior ones eventually, but I'll start on the, on the physiologic level. Um, one is the, just the basic function of metabolism. And, and metabolism is you know, specifically referring to how your body manages energy, um, mm -hmm. how it stores energy, burns energy, how it does it efficiently or inefficiently. And one of the things that we're learning more and more about is you know, in cells on the molecular level, there, there are these interactions that take place that have to do with using insulin to transport glucose into cells so that they can be used to generate energy. And, and what's the machinery of that? And it turns out that much of that machinery is sleep-dependent um, mm -hmm. and circadian. So, for example, um, cells are built to take in more energy um, during the day. Mm -hmm. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 when you're supposed to be asleep, you're not supposed to be um, having to react quickly to things. So, so that's, you know, so, so you're optimizing um, glucose transport for different times of the day. And that, that involves the insulin system. So insulin being the hormone that, that, you know, secreted by your pancreas. And, and one of the main things that insulin does is, you know, it helps bring the glucose into the cells so it can be used as energy. Without insulin, the glucose is just floating around there in your bloodstream, not being able to be used. Uh -huh. And that's why people with diabetes have a high blood sugar because the high blood sugar means there's all this sugar floating around in your blood. You don't have either your cells, it's too much for your cells to even use or your insulin's not working right. So that's where, where this blood sugar comes from. So, so, you know, one of the things, some of the things that sleep does and, and also how this is tied into the nighttime version parts of circadian rhythms, it, it, it not only helps optimize your cell's ability to just process energy efficiently at the molecular level, it's also that whole system that involves um, insulin sensing and secretion and, and, and sensitivity on cells. All, that whole system is related to um, sleep-wake. Where, where sleep helps maintain that system so it runs properly. Um, you know, it was discovered about, I don't know, about 15 years ago now, or maybe almost 20 years ago now, that if you take a young, healthy person with no medical history who looks perfectly healthy, and if you want to make them look like they're diabetic, sleep deprive them for a few days, and then measure, their, then measure the insulin and glucose in their blood, they start looking like they're becoming diabetic. Um, and that's because you're disrupting that system. I mean, the good news was that after they gave those people two nights of, of good sleep, they recovered and they looked back to normal. Um, but I think it speaks to the, the importance of the glucose insulin system. Another important system that's involved here is inflammation. So we think of it, so, so inflammation is, is a key aspect of the immune system. And when most people think of the immune system, they think of fighting disease, right? That, that when we think of the immune system, we think of, of targeting bacteria and viruses and foreign agents in our blood. Uh, and that's a very important part of the immune system, and it's one of the main things the immune system does. But the immune system is, is, is also has a very, very important function that, that is not that. Um, and that is regeneration um, and, re and repair 
So, so our body is constantly under stress when it's um, interacting with the environment. It's just because it's like we're going out into a blizzard. You know, we're, we're, uh, the world pelts us with with things, whether it's you know things we're breathing in or we're eating or 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 as we exercise, it exerts energy and like all, all the an injury happens and, and and we grow and every cell in our body has a life cycle where it, where it's born and it lives and and sometimes it it. Um, separates and, and reproduces sometimes it dies and and we need to have a system that manages that how does our body know when a cell needs to be deleted and and what it needs to be replaced with how does our body know where to build new blood vessels or or expand them or contract them or or to grow new muscle or like all of these things that are dynamically happening in our body so it, it, it's constantly growing and changing it's the immune system that plays a very critical role here because that's what's telling our, our body where to grow, how to grow, how to repair, when a cell needs, it needs to be uh, marked for deletion. Like all of that stuff is, is part of the immune system. And there's a reason why we're told to sleep and, and lay down when we're sick because sleep and the immune system are very closely tied to each other. So when you're not sleeping well, um, and you're not sleeping enough. And sometimes if you're even oversleeping and sleeping too much uh, under other normal circumstances, um, you, your immune system gets thrown out of whack. And what will happen is your body is, tr is, is not able to heal and repair itself properly on a, on a fundamental level, which means um, that the blood vessels in the cardiovascular system, which is highly sensitive to fluctuations in the immune system, um, it doesn't work as well. So that's, that's another pathway is the immune system. Other ones are things like sympathetic nervous system. So your fight or flight response. There's a whole biology underlying this. Um, mm -hmm. And how your body regulates the sympathetic nervous system um, is also highly sleep dependent. Um, and so you can show, for example, that 24-hour patterns in blood pressure, first of all, you know, sleep is supposed to lower your blood pressure for very important reasons that are tied with the sympathetic system. And, and when, when, when you're under extra stress, that doesn't work as well, and, and it can lead to more heart disease. Another one is um, the uh, potential of changes in lipids and, and fats in your blood. So uh, the liver, where, which manufactures all the cholesterol for your body. Um, so most people think of cholesterol as an inconvenience and stuff in their food, where most of the cholesterol in your blood doesn't come from food. It comes from your liver. And your liver creates it, and, and evolution never really had a problem of too much cholesterol until very recently. Instead, we try and protect our cholesterol because it's one of the main ingredients in rebuilding cells, is cell membranes, especially is cholesterol. So we always want to have a steady supply so our body can rebuild and repair itself properly. Now, when um, when and it looks like the when you look at the liver, the liver itself has a timing system where it tries to optimize the production. Uh, of of these cholesterols to help repair cells, time to when the immune system wants to be building it, specifically at night during sleep, for example. And by disrupting sleep, you might be able to you might be disrupting this whole system. Um, another one, and I'll list one or two more just to give people an idea that, that there's actually a wide range of things here. Another one is metabolic hormones. So so like leptin, which is very important in satiety and, and reward processes from food. And, and ghrelin, which is a hormone secreted in your stomach that, that has to do with hunger, um, both of those can get disrupted. Um, and the endocannabinoid system, which promotes hunger and things like that, 
also get disrupted when you disrupt sleep. So all of these biological systems that have to do with regulating your, your healing, repairing, cardiovascular, energy, metabolic processes, that they're all tied into sleep-wake and where sleep plays important regulatory and maintenance functions. And when you're not able to get the sleep you need, you're not able to perform those functions optimally. Um, and, and so, you know, a slight, you know, one or two bad nights isn't going to lead to disastrous consequences. It's, it's what happens after days and weeks and months and years and decades that, you know, your trajectory just becomes somewhere it, it, that's far from where you started. Um, and then on the behavioral side, there's a few really important things. One is fatigue. You know, fatigue leads you to have less energy. Um, fatigue leads to all kinds of un, un, uh, uh, unhealthy choices. Um, another thing is decision-making and cognitive function. So sleep loss impairs our ability to think properly. And when we can't think well, we can't make good decisions. And sometimes making healthy decisions is difficult. Whether to eat, you know, one more piece of whatever it is you're eating. You know, how many, how many, you know, should you go for the side salad or the french fries? Well, when you're sleep deprived, you might be more likely to be craving the extra energy um, and go for the more unhealthy food, even if your body doesn't really need it. Um, the other thing is, is that when you stay up late, uh, you get into a period where your body is, is not needing to take in extra calories, but you start craving energy. So you start gaining weight by eating by excess nighttime snacking because people are consuming way too many calories at night sometimes when they're not sleeping well. Um, so you get a more unhealthy diet, you have less physical activity, um, you have worse decision making, your mood gets thrown off, your stress and emotion systems get thrown off. And all of that leads to, to this perfect storm of cardiometabolic disease. So not only is your, do you have your body itself not functioning optimally, but all the things that will help, like being clear-headed and making good decisions and having energy and doing things like eating well and exercising and, and taking care of yourself become harder when you're not sleeping well. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's very eye-opening as well. And I think it's fair to say that, once again, it affects, sleep affects multiple factors in the body and a lot of different systems. Um, and it's not just that one thing and it kind of correlates and it almost seems as if it is a bit like a snowball where it, it that gathers momentum and as you said it's not just about having one good night's sleep um or a bad night's sleep it's what you do over time which really contributes to that um in in the long run and i think that's what a lot of people seem to get out of contact um, and then at the same time, you know, people go, oh, sleep better. Well, it's easier said than done, which would right. lead me into the next sort of question, which is, uh, and, and we'll look at ways to improve sleep specifically in, in multiple questions, I think, across this podcast, but interrelated to the question I've just asked with people who have, you know, these diseases, what are strategies and tools that you implement to help them um, create these better behaviors and adherence towards actually getting better sleep so they can overcome again these diseases or, or you know uh, health risks that they are prone to and i think like, like just so, quickly the the one that you mentioned it there the biggest one is people who work night night shifts you know they are obviously really yeah. susceptible they often show 
um, they're, they're usually overweight, you know, diabetic or on borderline of it, uh, amongst other things, because again, the adrenaline, the leptin levels, and hormonally, they are just completely um, set up wrong. So perhaps, I know we could use that as an example, but please um, elaborate on, and perhaps use some real life examples as well with people that you've worked with uh, for, the, for the listeners. Sure. So when I think about this question, I, I really think of this as a three-step approach, mm-hmm. where step one is sleep disorders. Like if you've got a sleep disorder, you need to get it treated. And so the most common sleep disorders are uh, insomnia and sleep apnea, but there are others too. Mm-hmm. And the reason this is first um, is twofold. One, most people with sleep disorders still don't know it. They don't know that they have a sleep disorder. So identifying them is actually a critical missing piece to a lot of these questions. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are saying, you know, I wish I could get better sleep. Give me some tips. And they try every tip in the world that it's not fixing things because they have a sleep disorder that's been undiagnosed and untreated. So mm-hmm. I, I think, so the first, the first issue is that it's, it's under, under treated. But the other thing is, um, that if you have an untreated sleep disorder, it's hard for anything else to help. It's like if you have, you know, you can give people all of the exercise tips you want, but if they've got a sprained ankle, none of that stuff is really going to be helpful until they get that ankle fixed, right? Yeah. So, 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 I mean, the, the worst part of this with sleep, most people don't even know they have that sprained ankle. So, so I want to give people a little bit of insight as to how do you know if you have a sleep disorder. First of all, I want to let them know that if you didn't know it, there's a whole specialty of sleep specialists. Um, there's um, MD sleep specialists. They mostly focus on sleep apnea, but they know a lot of other stuff too. Uh, and then there's the PhD sleep specialists. Uh, which I am, we we mostly focus on insomnia, though again, we, we work with everything too. Um, but um, so for, for sleep apnea, um, it's actually shockingly common. About one in five men over age 30 probably has at least mild sleep apnea, according to the most recent data. Uh, and it's maybe one out of 15 women also over age 30. Just most of them don't get diagnosed. Um, a good rule, good rule of thumb um, in terms of sleep apnea is... There's, there's eight key risk factors. And if you've got more than two of these, you're at high risk for having sleep apnea. So I'm going to go through the list. So the acronym uh, is STOP BANG. So S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G. S is for snoring. Uh-huh. T, is for, T is for tiredness um, during the day, especially if you have trouble keeping your eyes open during the day when you should be awake. Um, like if you're someone who falls asleep at the drop of a hat, you can't watch a movie because you're falling asleep especially those sorts of people, that's extreme daytime sleepiness. So the O is for observed apnea. So if anyone's ever seen you stop breathing during the night, or if you've ever caught yourself waking up out of breath or gasping, mm-hmm. that's the O. You got the O. P means stands for pressure, so that's high blood pressure. So if you have high blood pressure, there's another point. So that's S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G. So B stands for body mass index uh, over 33. Um, A stands for age over 50. Uh-huh. N stands for neck circumference. So if you've got a wide neck, so for men, if it's, you know, seven, more than, especially more than like seven, those, that's 17 and a half inches, more than 17-ish inches. Um, 
Nope. Hello? Male over 50 with high blood pressure already has three points. Um, so if you have three or more and you're experiencing symptoms and problems, it might be worth getting tested for sleep apnea. What was, so sorry, think what was the G, Michael? You just cut out there for a second. Uh, oh, uh, gender. Male. Oh, gender. Right, sorry. Beautiful. Got yep. it. Yeah, so, so if, you've got, if you've got at least three points, um, could seriously consider you might have sleep apnea. It's shockingly common. It's normal. It, it's not like a rare disease at all. It's just it's a lot of people have it. Um, it, it seems it's very common. Treated. Yeah, it's extremely common. Like I said, what, about what, the, the most recent data here is about one out of every five men over age 30 probably has at least mild sleep apnea. Yeah, um, I, I, I speak to a lot of clients and they, um, you know, sometimes it's, it, this is a, a bit of an enigma in itself. They actually have bad sleep because of their partners. And I'm sure we'll cover that. Because, yeah, yeah. Because they they are actually what what's causing you know them to not sleep. Because <laughs> yeah. I, and I said you know what they should get and then they oh they won't get tested and I'm like I think they should get tested. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I mean like if if you so so the thing is sleep untreated sleep apnea, especially if it's severe sleep apnea that's untreated, is a major risk factor for heart attacks and strokes. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you weren't sure if you had cancer, you'd get tested, and you'd know. Oh I yeah. Mean, and that's, that's the thing. You've got something that can cause a heart. I mean, there's, there's, which is one of the reasons this has been picked up in athletics where you've had pro athletes who got had untreated sleep apnea and died. Um, and so a lot of the teams are now like, well, what did we miss? Like, this is a high priority area. We need to, you know, we need to jump on this where a lot of people are still, especially men, especially in a disease that's more common in men, men hate going to the doctor for anything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so, so that's the problem. Um, often, you know, so when I used to see patients at the, at the VA, so there were veterans and there were these, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old guys, um, or in their forties or whatever, a lot of them would come in saying like, well, I don't think I need to be here, but my wife says she's moving out unless I come see you. So like, I'm here, uh, you know, <laughs> this literally know, but, just reminds me of, of, yes. a, of a client scenario at the minute. It is just like <laughs> word for word. Yeah. It's, it's so true. Um, so, so that's a bit about sleep apnea. So, so. For insomnia, so ins there's really there's two kinds of insomnia. There's insomnia with a lowercase i and insomnia with a capital I, right? Mm -hmm. Just like depression. Like everyone gets a little depressed about stuff, maybe for a few days, and maybe even for a little while they might feel very down about stuff, but they don't cross the line into like a clinical depression. Um, and there's a spectrum. Sometimes you have depression symptoms that they'll resolve on their own. Sometimes it's caused by something else that resolves. Sometimes they're, they're severe enough to get in the way of life, even if you don't cross the line into a medical condition. And maybe it might be worth getting treated. But once you cross the line into a depressive disorder, you need to get that treated. Uh, it's probably not going to go away on its own. Uh -huh. And it's the same thing with insomnia, where lots of people have difficulty sleeping here and there. But there's a line where you cross into what we call insomnia disorder. Um, and there, there's some good rules of thumb here. One is... Um, that, that you, you look at how severe your sleep problem is over how long. So, so the rule of thumb we use in clinic is the 30-33 rule. So 30 minutes to fall asleep at the beginning of the night or 30 minutes during the night where you're trying to sleep and cannot. Uh -huh. um, like if you, if you get up to make go to the bathroom for, for 10 minutes, that, that, that's, that doesn't count. You're not trying to sleep. But uh -huh. 30 minutes trying to sleep at the beginning of the night or in the middle of the night at least three nights a week, 
And if it's been going on at least three months, um, and then you ask yourself, okay, are you giving yourself enough time to sleep? Are you, you know, are you setting your, you know, is, is, is it just because there's a light on or something? If it's nothing like that, that's getting in the way. It's, it's that you can't sleep even if you're trying to. Um, and it's causing you problems during the day, then you might need to get that treated. Um, that's, that's sort of the, the line for insomnia disorders, this 30-33 rule. 30 minutes at the beginning or 30 minutes in the middle, at least three nights a week, at least three months. Um, and, and, and your listeners should know that the recommended treatment for insomnia, um, the, the, the thing that is recommended by most medical organizations as the thing you should try first, Actually, they are almost all in unison recommending the exact same treatment. Um, mm -hmm. Even though lots of people do all kinds of stuff for insomnia, there is one treatment that is recommended as the first approach by everybody, and that's actually not medication. That is uh, CBTI, which stands for Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Insomnia. And it's, it's, it has the word therapy in it, but it's, it's less like psychotherapy. It's more, it's more of a training protocol because... Mm -hmm. The reason it works is that, um, so what it is, it's a training protocol that reteaches yourself to sleep. The reason it works is when you have chronic insomnia, part of the problem is that you inadvertently trained yourself to be awake in bed when you're trying to fall asleep. These are people who say they get into bed and their mind starts going and they can't turn it off. And then they'll spend all this time in bed. Even if they're exhausted, especially they get into bed and they're tired but they just cannot fall asleep. And that's because their brain sort of forgot how to sleep. It got used to being awake and unable to sleep. And so no matter what caused it initially, this, there's a learning process that happened. It's like, it's the same reason everyone hates going to the dentist's office and you're in a bad mood in the waiting room and nothing even happened yet. Um, it's because you learn about that place. It's like, it's the same reason when you go to the gym, you can make it through your whole workout, no matter how tired you are, because once you get there, that place triggers that, that response and you get into the zone quickly because there's only a few things that you do there. Mm -hmm. and, and so you don't, do, you don't rest there, you don't eat there, you don't do all this other stuff. So once you get there, your body knows what to do and take so and the, and the environment allows you to take over, um, just like with the dentist's office in a negative way. Mm -hmm. But what happens in the bed is the bed is supposed to do that for sleep. You're supposed to get into bed and the bed's supposed to be the place where you sleep and it creates, it becomes a trigger for sleep. But for many people, it's the opposite, where they get into bed and it sort of becomes, so people get into bed and they're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to fall asleep or not. I might, I might not. Maybe I probably won't. That, that is a signal that a learning process happened in the wrong direction. And so what CBTI does is it, it's essentially a training protocol where you reteach the brain to sleep in bed. It's actually one of the things I tell patients, it's, it's a lot more like physical therapy than psychotherapy. But you need to have someone who's trained in how to do it. Um, and th there's, there's directories online where you can find people and you can ask people if, if they know CBTI. It's different from regular like, CBT for depression and CBT for anxiety. CBT for insomnia is its own thing. It's much more of, of a training than like a therapy. Uh -huh. um, just letting people know that, that that's out there. That's act and it doesn't have the side effects that a lot of the medications have. It, it doesn't carry a lot of the same risks. And it actually does work head-to-head um, -head against the medications, it does work as well or better um, in about, if you, if you give it the same eight-week time period, um, it tends to work as well or better in the short term, and it, and it definitely works better in the long term. So that's why it's recommended first by pretty much everybody, even though 
it's a lot of practitioners don't know how to do it. It's usually psychologists, but other people can do it too. Nurses can get trained on it. There's people out there who do it. Um, if you're having trouble finding somebody, um, one or so you could get a referral to someone locally. I mean, if, you, if you're looking to see, um, there's, there's a couple directories out there. Actually, there's one website, which is the website is just cbti.directory which mm -hmm. is hosted by uh, Michael Perlis at the University of Pennsylvania, where mm -hmm. he's, he's put together a list of all the people he knows who does this. I don't know how international the list is. I know it's international. Um, there's a, there are, so, so if you're, I mean, you're in Australia, right? Correct. Um, yeah, in Australia, there's actually, Australia is one of the, the best places in the world for, for this. There's uh, people at, um, a number of different places around Australia. So, so Monash has a great program. Flinders has a great program. Adelaide. I mean, there's uh, um, Sydney. There, there's there's a bunch of great programs. A lot of them are university affiliated because it's a lot of times it's it's researchers doing this. It's a very science based approach. Sure. But there's people out in the communities. If if you have trouble finding people, you know, you'll have you know your your users will have access to my email in in any kind of show notes or whatever you have. Um, I'll, 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 I'll give out my email and, and anyone who says, Hey, I listened to you on this thing. How the heck do I find somebody? I'm, I'm happy to write write back and help people find people. Um, yeah, no, I, I anyway, so that's that. CBTI. So that's CBTI. There are other medications. Some of them are, are shown to be more helpful than others. Um, but that's a whole other can of worms. There's also melatonin. Uh, so the thing about melatonin is, um, melatonin usually does not work to fix insomnia because the way melatonin works, it's more of a circadian rhythm thing. It's a day night thing. Your body produces melatonin when it's nighttime. So um, if you take it during the day, it won't really have an effect because your body knows it's not nighttime. If you take it right up around bedtime, it often has very little effect because your body already knows it's nighttime. If you're you, to take it around the transitions can help shift your night earlier or later but it generally, you know, for, for people with sleep problems, it doesn't tend to, to do a lot. Um, it can make sleep quality better. It could help you fall asleep a little faster. But if you have an insomnia disorder, it's probably not going to be enough to treat it. Um, I just want people to know that because I get people showing up in my clinic all the time saying like, oh, I took melatonin. It didn't work. And I could say, I could have told you that. Like it, it'll, it, might, it might help more minor issues, but yeah. it's, not, it's not an insomnia treatment. No, I think a lot so of people anyway, are looking for that quick fix. Yeah, so that's sleep disorders. There's also restless legs and, and other sleep disorders. So it, it might be worth getting those checked out. So the second thing that is, so the first thing is the sleep disorders. The second okay. thing is removing barriers to sleep. So you, you, you've treated any disorders you have, but you're still having problems. So what are some ways that you can fix sleep problems? So one is, I mean, there's lots of the stuff you'll see online. So I'm going to not, I'm not going to dwell on like of stuff that anyone can Google. For but, sure. Um, there's a few key things that I think will help um, improve your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. One is to give yourself enough time to wind down, where most people just don't do that, where mm -hmm. they expect to get into bed and then to turn their mind off like a light switch, and it doesn't work that way. Think of it more like a car. Um, or more, actually, a better analogy would be like an airplane. Mm -hmm. So, like, you're in the air and you need to land at the airport. You start descending way early because you can't just drop. Um, it doesn't, airplanes don't work that way, or at least they're not supposed to. When they do, <laughs> that's bad. Yeah. You know? 
you're supposed like it's the same thing with consciousness. You're not supposed to immediately go unconscious, right? That mm -hmm. if humans did that, that would be bad. Like that's that's not a good thing. You don't want to immediately drop. You Correct. your body is built to, and, and this is part of that. You know, talking about this context of of survival and efficiency, the body was built so that if you need to stay up longer, you can. Like if you're running from that proverbial bear, if you're doing something important. Your body doesn't just drop all of a sudden with no warning. You have to give it that lead time to wind down for that reason, because it's trying to protect you. You need to be able to allow your body the space to wind down. Otherwise, it's gonna, it's, it may not wind down naturally. So you uh -huh. need to give yourself enough time. I mean, like you're driving a car. You need to make a turn. Like if you're going to turn from consciousness to sleep, you need to tap the brakes a little bit. And the faster you're going and the sharper the turn, the more lead time you need to give yourself on the brakes. And if you don't, and if you miss your turn, that was not your car's fault. That was your fault for not slowing down enough. And so that's a, that I think is one of the number one things that people can do to remove barriers to sleep is, is first give themselves enough time. You don't have to sit there and meditate for an hour, but at least don't do something that's so distracting that you lose sense of the passage of time or you're doing something that's so activating that you now have to wind down from whatever it was you just did. So if you're watching some show that gets you, so if you're watching some show that gets you all worked up, um, don't do that because now you have to wind down from the thing you were using to wind down. Don't do that. Um, okay. And also bright lights, like bright light suppresses natural melatonin. So if you want to be able to help your body know it's nighttime, keep the lights on the dimmer side in the evening, at least a half an hour to an hour before you are planning on going to bed. Um, and, and the most important thing though is giving yourself time. You need the time. So that's the other one. The other thing that I would say to do um, that isn't always readily Googleable um, to, to sort of fix sleep problems is something called stimulus control. So this was developed back in the 70s and is extremely effective at fixing my, especially minor sleep problems. And remember I was talking about CBTI trains you, you to be able to sleep in bed. Uh -huh. So part of that is, is sort of an amped up version of stimulus control, but there's a simplified version that anyone can do. Um, and basically it's this. Bed equals sleep. Not sleep equals not bed. You want to, you want to just like the gym, you don't do other stuff in the gym besides workout or else it actually makes it harder to work out there. Um, just like you don't do anything in bed besides sleep, sex is fine, but except for that, nothing else besides sleep if you can help it. Uh -huh. um, and, and what that'll do is it helps pair the bed with sleep so thoroughly that even if you are a little worked up or stressed or whatever, or you wake up in the middle of the night and uh, in a panic about something, you can calm yourself back down and get back to sleep. Um, and so the way to, to do this in practice is if you don't think that sleep is going to happen if you get into bed, don't get into bed. Wait until you think sleep is coming. If you're pretty sure you're able to fall asleep, get into bed. If you're not sure if you could fall asleep or not, get into bed. Don't wait. But give yourself a half an hour. If, uh -huh. it's, if you're awake for more than a half an hour, it's not happening. Get up and, and reset. Um, I don't care how long you reset for. could be five minutes. could be an hour. But whatever it takes to get to that point where you think it's worth trying again, do it. But don't spend more than a half an hour at any stretch awake in bed. Even if you're going to be awake for three hours, 
fine. Be in bed for half an hour. Get up. Um, and if you want to try again, go back. But don't be in bed for more than a half an hour at a time. I mean, it's again, it's not about 29 minutes versus 31 minutes. It's about a ballpark of about a half an hour. I mean, uh. people could, you could be laying in bed for 15 minutes and then the voice in your head says, you know, this is not happening. I'm not falling asleep right now. I'm too awake. Get up then. You're not, you're not doing yourself any favors by laying in bed. And, and most importantly, you do this in the middle of the night too. If you wake up and are not falling back to sleep, get up, get out of bed. And then you'll say, well, what if I sleep less? I'll be more tired the next day. My answer is good. You'll be that much more sleepy the next night. You're actually investing in your next night's sleep by not spending extra time in bed awake. You're, you're, you might buy yourself a few more minutes of sleep if you go back into bed, but by, by getting out and maybe making yourself a little more sleepy that next day, whatever it was that was keeping you up, you now have extra ammo on your side and extra pressure to get to sleep the next night, and it'll help um, smooth all that over. And also, one night of, of poor sleep is probably not going to cause any pretty bad outcomes anyway. I mean, people are afraid of like, well, what if I not, don't sleep as much tonight? You weren't anyway. You know, tonight, tonight is what it is. What you want to do is you don't want to make the problem worse. Uh-huh. And, and that's a surefire way to create an insomnia where you didn't have one. And it's if you can't sleep, you don't get out of bed. Yeah, because then you're associating the bed with, with no sleep. What are your thoughts being on awake. reading as well? Because I know a lot of people like to read in bed. Um, what are your yeah. experiences with that? So, so two thoughts about that. One is, some, for some people, getting out of bed is a problem. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's something as dumb as, I have a dog, and if he hears me get up in the middle of the night, he's up and i got to take him out, and then my night's over. Mm-hmm. Or it could be, Someone is like, look, you know, it's painful for me to get up or it might be dangerous because it's too dark and I don't want to bump into anything. So what I say is, look, if you're going to be in bed, what you want to do is not send yourself mixed signals as to whether it's a sleep opportunity or not. You want to make it clear that, that when you're in bed not trying to sleep, you, you couldn't fall asleep if you wanted to, which usually means sitting up, usually means you're not under the blanket, it usually means your head's not on a pillow. And, and if preferably optimally you're you're not even in the part of the bed that you sleep in so so maybe you're at the side of the bed or the foot of the bed or something um, yeah so you can do that um and reading in bed um is probably better than something like watching tv because reading you know requires your eye you know your eyes when your eyes start nodding and your head starts bobbing like when you're reading you'll notice that and that's a sign to go to sleep um, but when you're looking at screens and stuff you don't always notice um so of all the activities to do in bed, reading, I think, is probably the most harmless. Um, and, um, and, you know, unless you're the kind of person who needs to pick up a book and then can't put it down, you know, for hours. <laughs> yeah. But like, you need to be, whatever it is, you need to be able to put it down and, and be okay with that. So some people can watch one episode of a show and put it down. Some people can't. Uh, reading is probably the best, um, but some for some people it's not optimal. So I'm not it's not necessary for everybody. Yeah. So, okay. So first was sleep disorders. Then it was fixing all the minor sleep problems you have, mostly by setting yourself up for success rather than um, trying to micromanage it. Really. Then the third thing is optimizing. And so, so what if you sleep fine? Could you sleep better? Um, and I think, and I think for those people. Um, there's a few things you could think about besides the stuff like, you know, just being rig- religious about stimulus control and, and rigorous about giving yourself enough time to wind down and all this stuff. Um, other things to think about is maybe napping during the day. A brief nap might actually improve performance. 
mm-hmm. um, things like um, insulating yourself at night from light and sound. So like a fan or white noise machine or earplugs and eye masks. I mean, some of the best sleep technology is pretty cheap. Um, yeah, simple. You know, and, 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 and they work. Um, so they can help. So, so when people say I wake up during the night, um, usually the causes for that besides, it's either like an untreated medical condition like sleep apnea or chronic pain or something, or it's something in the environment that you're not even aware of. And that comes to the couple's issue where sometimes, you know, most human adults sleep with another human adult, you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. with non-human adults like pets, you mm-hmm. know, and and yeah. when you're sleep, when you're when you're sleeping with with somebody else or or with a pet, you know, especially animals, they don't sleep through the night. Humans, uh-huh. animals never sleep through the night. They're not built to. They never they never really did. Um, and so they'll move around a lot more during the night anyway. And and even a bed partner, you know, every time they roll over, you might feel it. You know, uh-huh. so so I mean, it seems like in looking at the data, the actual sleep you get is better when you're sleeping alone, but your perception of the quality of your sleep tends to be better when you're not alone. Um, and it just goes to the humans being social animals. Uh, but if you have a bed partner who's tossing and turning and has their own sleep problem, it'll cause a sleep problem for you. Mm. Um, and so a lot of people, that's, you know, that's why a lot of people will sleep in separate beds, even if it's in the same room. Um, or, or you have like the, these split kings where they're, there, whether it's a king size frame, but it's really two twin XLs where they don't have to interfere with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so there's, so it's actually, so there might be a, a way to optimize that. But I would also say, like, look, if your bed partners cause you problems, grab them by the ear and drag them in, um, because you know they're not now they're now they're making they're, they can create insomnia for you by continually waking you up and making it harder for you to fall back to sleep. Yeah. Correct. And it's just a, an ongoing problem, I guess. Yeah. yeah and no, there's actually some great data coming out of Monash, actually. There's a researcher in Monash who's been looking at couples-based um, CBTI for insomnia. And that a lot of times the insomnia impacts both members of the couple, even if only one person has it. And they're showing that involving couples actually helps. There's already over a decade worth of data with sleep apnea, that bringing the spouse in, you know, bringing the other person in, um, helps because it helps create the support system uh, because you know people are sleeping together and the sleep problem is shared and so getting get, getting involved I, I would say is a great thing yeah I think that's a really important point as well because again it's such an intimate thing uh, even with yeah. you know, your, your partner that you're sleeping that it, you need to acknowledge it again not just from the standpoint of support but also I think even just the actual you know, knowledge itself, if your partner understands a, what it is you're going through, what you're diagnosed with, what, you know, the strategies are, then like you said, they can help actually, you know, I guess, hold you accountable to that and perhaps, you know, prevent or again, imply or implicate any of the knowledge that gets administered, whether it's through CBTI, et cetera, or even again, I think another one, which is, again, these are the little things that slip through the cracks. Your partner might be someone who reads or is on their laptop in bed. You're trying to sleep when they're on their laptop. <laughs> right. Right, that affects you. It's it's kind of a little bit selfish where it might be like, hey, you just need to have these conversations. You know, obviously in an adult yeah. way where look, that's this is not acceptable or, or we, we need to this needs to be a place of sleep, even though you're working 
I sleep at this time. And a lot of partners, you know, they have different jobs. They have different time schedules. Sometimes a partner gets in at night. Oh, bam. Then you're woken up. God damn, you know? So I think that's, I think those, um, those are really important points. I really like how you broke that down into three parts as well. Cause I think again, it's not a, it's not a one word answer. And a lot of people are going about it wrong. They're trying to do the whole band aid approach where it's like, I think we need to get to the root cause of the problem first. If there is one with, like you said, a sleeping disorder and then work back uh, or forward from that point. So I think that's really great. Yeah. And, and um, I, I think it, it really helps to break it into, look, if you have a sleep disorder, none of that other stuff is going to matter. Get that for you first. Then, mm-hmm. okay, if you don't have a sleep disorder, then you can start fixing these problems. And even if you're sleeping pretty okay, there's a way to make it better. Just like with diet. Like if you have, um, if you've got an eating disorder, like get that fixed, mm-hmm. you know, if, or a metabolic condition, like deal with that. But if you're otherwise in the normal range and you want to eat better, there's all kinds of ways to do that. And let's say your diet is fine. Could you even optimize it further? Well, maybe. And, and so, so that's rather than people jumping straight to optimization, well, what if that's not where they're at? And then, and then they try these optimizing methods that fail. Well, that's because they're in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing you mentioned about people coming in, that, I mean, that goes back to what you're talking about with shift work. I mean, that goes to this issue, what we were talking about of, of, of fixing problems. Of, for a lot of times with shift workers, the problem is they're trying to sleep during the day when the body on the circadian pattern is not really wanting to sleep, especially if they're, they're sometimes sleeping during the day and sometimes at night their body is a hard time adjusting to it. So the sleep they're getting tends to be more shallow um, and less restorative. And so, I mean, the only thing you can really do besides recommend that people pick a part of the day for sleep and stick with it and help your body um, um, fix that time as their sleep time and not move it, but that becomes practically hard. But what you can do, for example, is just insulate that time as much as possible, make it as dark as possible, as quiet as possible, use earplugs if possible all those sorts of things to protect your sleep. Um, the other thing that'll happen is um, where you wake up will play a big role. So if, that's why most people, when they have an awakening in the first hour or two of the night, um, they'll probably fall asleep pretty quickly again, or they might not even remember those awakenings. Whereas if you're waking up after you know, three, five, or six hours, and sometimes you have a hard time getting back to sleep, um, there's actual biological reasons for that that have to do with you're just dissipating your sleep pressure uh, and, and around times we all have normal awakenings or some people have a harder time going to sleep then and that's normal but if you're going to plan an interruption for your sleep don't plan it in the second half of the night is what i'm saying yeah no the, again i guess the little things as well go a long way that people yeah. are over, overlooking and they're too quick to reach for you know medicines which well, i would like to touch base on a little bit yeah. uh, later but before we do I'd like to sort of transition into the biggest mistakes and misconceptions about sleep, apart from some of the things we've already sort of vicariously covered. Um, when you work with people or things that you see on social media, might be people when you're interacting, when you're giving seminars, symposiums, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. Questions where people just go, oh, you know, this is my belief. And you go, oh, actually, that's not quite correct. So what are, what are the biggest misconceptions and mistakes about sleep that you come in contact with? So, so one thing I want to say, and, and, and you could post a link to this, um, a colleague of mine, um, Rebecca Robbins, uh, wrote a 
paper that I was on and helped write where what we did was we actually did a study on sleep myths mm-hmm. and looked to see what, what some of the common sleep myths were and, and sort of debunked a bunch of them. Um, and so we, there were nine in particular, but, uh, and so, so I can, I can send you a link to that. That would be great. But in the mean, but in the meantime, so this is, you know, it's a slightly different issue, but in, in the meantime, the, th- the three biggest things that I think people have a hard time with, um, wrapping their head around in terms of myths about sleep. One is about sleep duration. And that's either I need to get eight hours or everything's terrible, or it's I'm doing fine on five or six hours because I feel okay. Both of those are wrong. Um, where And they're wrong because we don't, on the one hand, we don't know exactly how much sleep anybody needs. There's no blood test for this. But we do know that on average, people getting seven to eight hours of sleep do fine, um, are, are most likely to be at low risk for all these things. And the further you deviate, the more your risk tends to go up. Uh-huh. Um, and, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same all the time. You know, it's, it's, there is flexibility in the system that uh, if you feel like you can't get enough sleep, like you can't, you just no matter how much sleep you get, it's just not enough, uh, and you're getting seven to eight hours, it might mean that actually there's something with your sleep quality. Something's keeping it shallow, like an undiagnosed medical condition or something mm-hmm. or untreated. Um, if, if you're getting seven to eight hours, you should be feeling relatively well rested. If you're not, that would be a question for a sleep specialist to try and figure out, are you just at the edges of the normal curve or is there something missing there? The mm-hmm. other thing is on the low end, people think that they're adjusting to less sleep. And, and all the laboratory data shows that people think they're adjusting, but they're not. Uh-huh. So, for example, we did a study on drowsy driving that showed that the less sleep you get, the more likely you are to nod off at the wheel. Not terribly surprising. But when we restricted the analysis only to people who, were, who said they were totally 100% well-rested all the time, you know, like in the last 30 days, they were totally well-rested. Those people were also, you know, it was how much they slept that predicted drowsy driving, not how well-rested they thought they were. Which just goes to show that the lab findings bear out in the real world that people have no clue how sleep-deprived they are. And, the more, and if, you're, if you're getting five or six hours, you're more likely to do stuff like nod off at the wheel and make poor decisions and all this sort of stuff, no matter how well-rested you think you are. Um, clearly, there are people out there getting five or six hours and doing fine. I don't think that those people don't exist. It's just, statistically, you are not likely to be one, whoever you are. Um, I would, rather than how you feel, I would go based on more observable metrics, like you know, do you have energy throughout the day? Do you feel like you have trouble making it through the day? Do you feel like, um, you know, are, are, do you have problems with weight? Are you having problems, you know, with, with any kind of health stuff or energy stuff or like anything that's a little more directly, you know, do you have, do you feel like you have a short fuse? You know, do you feel very stressed out? Like, do you feel like you don't have enough time? Those sorts of things, you know, might be a clue that actually you're not sleeping enough. You just might not realize it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, so that's, that's a big one is, is how much sleep you get. Um, another big one that people have is that sleep disorders are rare. They're not rare. They're actually very, very common. Um, and they're also highly treatable. Uh, and most people I see in my clinic, they're like, wow, I wish I saw you 10 years ago. Um, I, I didn't realize <laughs> it was this easy. Yeah. Um, they're, they're actually sleep problems are easier to fix than things like diet and exercise uh, and, and a lot of other medical conditions. It's sleep disorders are highly treatable. 
Um, most people just don't know they have them. So uh-huh. that's the second one. Um, a third one that I think a lot of people um, don't quite understand is that is is really that sleep is rest, and sleep includes rest, but sleep is actually highly active. It's true that your body burns less calories sleeping than being awake, but it's not that much less. It's maybe the equivalent of I don't know about a slice of bread per hour in terms of in terms of extra calories burned versus not. Um, it, it's really not that big of a difference. Your body is very active during sleep and your brain is extremely active during, during certain parts of sleep. I mean, your body is also resting during parts too, but it's a very dynamic process. It's not just like, it's not idle. Your, your, your body is not just on idle and, you know, rejuvenating by inaction. It's actually a very active process. And, and that's why um, when people say they don't have time, um, that I think, and, th- and that's what I would want to say is the biggest misconception that people have is that they don't have time to sleep. So, uh, and, and this is, this is sort of a, a, a point that I want to emphasize is that what if I could give you that time? So we did this study in, in college athletes who, who are usually very overscheduled and they don't have time for sleep. Um, and we did an intervention that increased their sleep time by over an hour. And the majority of the extra sleep they got, they were already spending it in bed. We just helped their sleep be more efficient. And by increasing their sleep, we got them to be more efficient during the day. So mm-hmm. actually, by, getting, by increasing their, not only were they able to find the time, because we helped teach them how to do it, um, most of that time they were already spending in bed anyway. So they, weren't, they didn't actually need to sacrifice nearly as much time as they thought. Um, and they all, the, almost all of them um, rated improvements in things like their academics and their athletics and their, their mental health and their stress, which freed up time and mental energy for them, which, which actually is what, so they ended up feeling better about their energy and their time than before they started. And I think, and I think that's, that's probably the most important misconception about sleep is I don't have time. I bet you do. Um, you just don't know it or you don't feel it because you might need some help getting there. Uh, and, and that's the sort of stuff we're trying to figure out and work on. Yeah. And that last point, And again, we talked about this before we started, you know, recording, that's the biggest pushback I get from a lot of professionals. And, you know, with myself, I'm currently, you know, 28 years old, I'm quite young, you know, I'm single. Um, sometimes I work with people and they look at me and go, you know, what, what do I know? You know, I don't have a family, I don't have kids. <laughs> to, to, to them, you know, they, I've not got a busy schedule. Although, you know, I'd like to think uh, without Everyone's being biased busy. that, yeah, you know, but I like, I like to say I'm productive rather than busy. You know, I, I do have yeah. a lot going on because I'm not just, a, you know, a, an exercise, a strength and conditioning coach or a physique coach. It's for me, you know, I'm, I'm doing podcasts and I'm editing. I'm putting, you know, what I'd like to think is great information out there with my YouTube and online coach. I don't think people realize that. But at the same time, you know, getting the buy-in sometimes of the more experienced individual or I find um, people who, you know, have, you know, are in higher uh, job thresholds, CEOs, etc. they really they have this just this constant block in their mind like oh i i can't like i've got a i've got to work you don't understand like i have to do this job and it's really hard so would you have any advices for those people or even for myself or other practitioners like myself who you know perhaps are in a position where uh or what might appear to be our lifestyle is 
you know, a lot easier. Uh, so we, we just, we don't get that perhaps well-deserved respect as practitioners to even influence better sleep. Or is there any sort of communications or, you know, I guess verbiages that we could, you know, give these people or put, put to our clients that perhaps would get the, the buy-in a little bit better or, or help them understand how important it is or that they can actually, you know, find time. And that's something that really, you know, and I'm going to say it pisses me off when people always say, I can't find time. And I'm, someone who will be as flexible. I work on more intelligent based protocols. So, you know, you can be flexible when you're programming. There are, you can get a lot, a lot less, but at some point the, the, the client's got to come to the party. You know, you've, you've got your adherence, you've got to do the minimum. Um, so what are some, I guess, strategies or your experience with that in improving, you know, adherence or getting the buy-in? So one of the things I told the athletes was, what if I told you I had a routine for you to do uh-huh. that would take between a half an hour and an hour um, that could improve your athletic performance by, depending on the outcome, depending on the study and the sport, between 9 and 30%. Would you do uh-huh. it? And I said, okay, well, what if you have to do it for like 30 to 60 minutes a day? Uh-huh. Would you do it? Okay, well, what if it, you could do it in your room And the main side effects are that your grades would go up, you'd be better able to manage your weight, your relationships would get better, and your and your mental health overall would be better. And you'd and you'd have more energy during the day. Would you still do it? And you could do it in your room. You don't even have to go anywhere out of your own bedroom to do it. Like what if I told you I had a routine for you to do, a set of exercises that took 30 to 60 minutes that could get you all of those outcomes? You don't have to do it every day, but would you do it pretty much every day? They said, yes. I'm like, all right, I got it. Like, this is what you have to do. Uh I mean, you have to see that extra 30 to 60 minutes of sleep, and especially for these college students, where a lot of them are not even getting the recommended amount. Um, It's not about trying to get them more is better. It's like, these are people who weren't getting enough, uh, and their quality wasn't very good. But I said, if I can improve, if you improve your sleep, you, these are the benefits you'll get, but it will require some time investment. Is that worth it? Is, is the, are these outcomes worth it to you? Rather than see sleep as a cost of, you know, a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck with their sleep. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, how much time do I have left today to spend? It's like, well, today I'm eating ramen noodles for sleep, you know, like, cause I've got, I've got no time. <laughs> That's a you good know? analogy. Yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, you know, once in a while that's fine, but, that's no way to live. And that's not a long-term solution. Really what, what people should be seeing sleep, not as how much time they have left at the end of the day. They should see it as what are they going to be investing in tomorrow? Uh-huh. So, 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 I mean, I see my own sleep when, when I'm deciding, okay, when am I going to go to bed? It's not be, it doesn't have to do with how much time do I have left at the end of today and how much I have to do because there's always more to do. It's how efficient and productive and clear-headed do I need to be tomorrow? Uh-huh. Where it's really about the, the next day. It's the, tonight's sleep is about tomorrow. It's not about today. Um, and, and I think that, that's a change in mindset um, where people see sleep as, as, as how the, the number of hours they have left after they're finished. But nobody's ever finished. And so, at least not in our society. And, and so that's, that's why we need to see this separately. 
Um, and so, so, and I think rather, and I think that the thing about crying is it's, it's, you don't take a get good sleep or else, you know, where I, I think for some people that helps where it's like, well, if you don't get enough sleep, you're at risk for Alzheimer's disease and you're at risk for diabetes and heart attacks and, and, and you're going to die sooner and all this stuff. And while that might be true, that's from a behavior science perspective, that's not very motivating, no. you know, like. T telling people that if you smoke, you're going to die doesn't, doesn't lead many people to quit smoking. No. Um, the, the truth is life is much more complicated than this. And it's, it's, it's not about telling people you need to eat your vegetables or else. It's who do you want to be? Like, who is it that you're trying to become? Who is it that you're trying to embody? What are your values? What are the what do you want to say that you did and what is going to get you closer to being that person or to doing those things that will define success for you? What behaviors bring you closer to success and what behaviors pull you away farther from success? What behaviors lead you closer to the person you want to be and which ones pull you further away? And when you see people as a facilitator of success, as an investment in efficiency and productivity, when you see sleep as, as something that you have control over that can help make your life better and help improve all the things you actually care about, then it's not about how much time do I have left. It's about what am I willing to invest in myself, in my future, and in my success? Uh -huh. And everyone has a finite amount of time and resources, but we get to choose. Where 20 years ago, someone taking an hour out of their workday to go to the gym in the middle of the day was seen as a bad worker. Now they're seen as somebody who takes their health seriously, and that's okay. Yeah. And if anything, it's encouraged. Um, and we budget time around it because it's, it's enough of a priority. Um, and I think we need to see sleep the same way. Not that we all need to take an hour out of the middle of the workday to do it, but maybe at the end of the day, you know, it's time to put the laptop down, you know, or it's time to put your phone down. Like it, are you going to invest in yourself or not? Especially since the show doesn't care if you watch one more episode of it. Like it's not offended if you turn it off, uh -huh. you know, you know, your work will be there tomorrow. Like it's not going anywhere. And, and you, you there's no way to finish everything and be done. Like you get to decide when you're done and, and you might actually be able to be more efficient tomorrow. If you give yourself a little more lead time to go to sleep today. Um, and, and, and that's, that's how I would turn it around. Yeah. And that's powerful stuff because I think it's, it's almost the inverse of what most people's thought processes are, as you've just explained. It's the fact that if you actually make more time for better sleep, that in turn could actually help you achieve all of those things which are actually causing the disturbance of sleep, which in, its, in itself is probably one of the most ironic facts, I think, about the whole sleep scenario where that's the first thing as we've talked about to go with a lot of people, busy professionals or not, everyone just sees sleep as an inconvenience rather than an investment. And they're like, yep, don't need that. That's the first thing to go. It's like, well, you wouldn't do that with oxygen purely based on the fact that you just right. can't like it's, it's, 
that's that's a beautiful thing right like if you try to do that with oxygen or food like you can do it with food you know you can do it with a lot of factors but you can't do that with oxygen um, right really I mean great. people do this people do this with food it's the same thing they say I'll eat healthier when my life is a little less stressful yeah. like when I have more money whatever but that never happens no. it never comes we always find a reason to push it off and if someone comes up to you that says I know my diet isn't good but I'm not going to make any changes now because I don't have time. I don't have time to eat healthy. Well, 20 years ago, that was a valid excuse. Now we've got all kinds of solutions for meal prepping and, and there's all kinds of much more readily available healthy foods now than there was. And it's not a valid excuse anymore. And, and we're just not quite there yet with sleep, but it's the same thing. We make that excuse that I'll eat healthier when I have more time. Yeah, but, we, that, but, that, but that's, that's not really a valid excuse anymore. And it's the same thing with sleep. Actually, if you ate healthier now, you'd be better off. You know, Correct. A way, you, should, you should be motivated. Instead of waiting for everything else to get better, you should be motivated to solve. The, the, it's a solvable problem. And, and if this is a priority for you, you can make it happen. You can do it. And I can, I can help you. The proverbial I, whether it's me, whether it's you, whether it's whoever's saying this message, you know, you're not alone. We can all help each other um, uh, figure out a way to make this work. I mean, nobody, like you're right, nobody says, you know, I'm going to go after, I'm going to start drinking clean water once I have more free time. Like, that sounds stupid. Yeah. Like, and, and we know that because it's, we, it's just, you know, with sleep, it's a little easier to put it off. But what we don't realize, we get into the cycle where poor sleep is feeding bad productivity, which is feeding, feeding poor sleep which is feeding stress, which is feeding more poor sleep. And, it's, and, and sometimes it's the sleep that you need to change first before you change the stress and all these other things. And they'll feed back in the system the way you want it to. Sure. I think uh, another good example of that is... Um, sorry, I'm just getting a bit of uh, on the mic okay. there. I don't, what, I don't know what happened to my, my headset. I don't know. Let me see. Let me unplug it and plug it back in. How's that? Yeah, that's better. So it was like a ruffling okay. or something. Cool. Um, yeah, sorry. Now you're right. Uh, is uh, Sean Acor's happiness advantage where you know he talks about how people are constantly putting happiness on the horizon, and I think this this is the correlation with a lot of these you know behavioral aspects too. It's like people are kind of you know I'll be happy when you know I get this job, I get that, or I'll sleep better when I'll eat better when. But like you said, with technology it's just it's not acceptable anymore and there's something that i try to preface with a lot of clients is that you know what i look for now with people i want to work with is an attitude um it's not necessarily an actual um i guess physical attribute you know people go oh, you know you want to work with athletes or something it's like no uh, i rather work with someone who is willing to apply and change you know behavioral aspects uh, that is all i ask for because i think when you have someone who is willing to change um, you can achieve great things no matter what. I mean, you can have the, the best setup in the world, the best you know, intelligence, you can have the best genetics, you can have the best lifestyle, but if you are not willing to apply yourself, it is all kind of in vain um, w within that respect. So some great points right, there. Sorry, go on. I don't, mind hold, I don't mind holding your hand through the process as long as you're willing to go through it with me. C correct, correct, exactly. And, and I think that is something that is highlighted more and more the, work, the more I work in the industry from what I can see from a and again I'll use a really simple perspective for the listeners there are two types of people not 
really but again if we <laughs> if i just had to if i just had to categorize yes. it again i'm just oversimplifying yeah. here so excuse me um the and people will say you know how how come joe or you know monique and jeremy got results i'm like well they followed protocol and they still had challenges they still had adversity they just decided that like you said they decided who they wanted to become and they made a change. And I find that, you know, you get to a point with a lot of people, if you are pushing up against a wall and they either evolve or they, they stay the same, they, they go back and, you know, and perhaps that's not the right time for them. But when people decide to make that change and they go enough is enough, that is when change occurs. And again, it's a very, it's, it's a simple thing to say. It's a, it's a very um, complicated task to achieve. I think for a lot of people, um, Something I'd like to touch base on now, and we kind of mentioned it there a little bit, is um, perhaps the actual negative outcomes of more acute um, uh, sleep deprival. So, you know, people think, oh, I didn't get one night of sleep. And people think, oh, my God, Um, I'm going to tie this up a little bit into a a multi-part question. Um, and, And that is then also... You know, Matthew Walker's Why We Sleep. I know that's been very popular yep. on the market, but I know that um, based on some literature that I follow, apparently some of the claims and the inferences weren't quite correct and it's left people a little bit like, oh, actually, maybe that's not quite right and they're a little bit over-scared, shall we say, um, versus, um, again, some outliers. Uh, that, so people think, oh, you know, I'm that person who can get away with three to six hours sleep or whatever it is. Um, maybe slay that myth if that is an actual um, genetic mutation, what we know about it. I, I'll give a real-life example. Yeah. I actually do work with a, this is a personal trainer in my facility, and he literally gets four or five hours sleep. He is perfectly healthy. He is never tired. Uh, this is based on what he's telling me and what I can observe. He's sharp. He's, and I'm like, wow. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is he one of these people? Or is it, you know, he doesn't have biphasial sleep based on what he's telling me. I don't think he naps in the afternoon. Yeah. So I'd love to kind of unpack that. So I guess first, acute negative outcomes of sleep, the reality of it. Matthew Walker's why we sleep, whatever you have to say on that. And yep. then again, whether these, these outliers or, or these genetic phenoms exist, if you will. So, so for the first part of the question, if you're coming from a place of strength where your sleep is relatively good, uh-huh. one or two nights of poor sleep is not going to impair your performance very much. Yes. Uh, it's sort of like with, just like with diet. If you have a healthy diet on average and you eat you know, a, a bacon cheeseburger, you are not going to die. Like, you'll, and you're not going to gain 20 pounds and like you're not, your metabolism is not going to be all out of whack. You might feel a little crummy for a little while, but you're okay. You'll be uh-huh. fine. Uh-huh. Um, if you've eaten like crap for the last month and then you eat that, your body's just going to be worse, right? And so th- that's how it is with, with, with sleep. It's sort of like it's, it's, it's a lot like diet where if you're coming from a place of strength and balance and regularity and, and you're generally fine, a little bit of dysregulation is – you're adaptive and, and you can, you can regain your footing easily enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you might feel kind of crummy for a day or two, but objectively your performance probably won't be too bad. If on the other hand, you've been, you've been depriving yourself even just a little bit at a time for days and weeks and months, the, the impairments are going to start accumulating over time. And then when you throw uh, a curveball in, when you're already out of balance, it's just going to push you even more out of balance. Mm. Um, 
So, so that, that's what I have to say about that. Think of it like diet. Think of um, if, you're, if, you, if your diet is generally healthy, one or two days of not eating well isn't going to throw you off too much. But if your diet is generally unhealthy, first of all, one to two days of eating well isn't going to fix everything. Mm. Um, but also um, uh, throwing it even more out of balance is going to have more, even more of an effect. So, the, so that's, that's where I am with that. So a lot of athletes, for example, can't sleep well before a competition because they're, they're really amped up. And I say to that, fine, budget for that. Get good sleep for your week before, knowing that those last day or two, you're not going to sleep as well, but you've banked enough good sleep that your performance won't be that impaired. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so in terms of Matt's book, so, so um, Matt and I have known each other for a long time. He said, you know, I, I, you know, we both go to the sleep conference and publish in the same journals. And well, not really. He tends to publish in better journals than me, to be totally honest. Uh-huh. Um, but, but, you know, we know a lot of the same people. He's a legit neuroscience scientist. He's a, he's, a, he's a fantastic neuroscientist. He's one of the best sleep neuroscientists probably in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's also a great communicator. Um, and, and I actually, so I, I bought his book as soon as it came out, seeing who it was from, because, you know, I, I trust him because he's one of us. He's one of us. He's not, he's not a person writing a book about something he doesn't know about. You know, or there's a lot of great sleep books written by non-sleep experts like journalists who did a lot of independent research and the book is great, uh-huh. but it's not telling their story. Like it's not telling their story as a sleep expert. And then, you know, and, and there's some books by sleep scientists that tend to be so focused on sleep disorders and fixing insomnia or whatever, that they're not about sleep health in general. Uh-huh. And, and Matt did a really good job about, uh, of, of helping to show everybody why sleep was important. And it's come under fire where sometimes it comes across a little too much as get good sleep or else. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I don't think anything, I don't think there's much that he's saying that's incorrect or wrong. There are some things that, that are interpreted a little further than I might. Um, but then again, he's, he, like I said, he's a much better neuroscientist than I am because I'm, I'm a psychologist, not a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. But he's also not a clinician. And so he's an educator. He's a great teacher. Um, but some of the clinical stuff I might have couched a little differently. But that said, I, I actually really like the book. I think it's done much more good than harm. But I think there are a subset of people who, who take it a little too far. And maybe... And I, and I know for a fact, because I've talked to him about this, that, that that's not the intention. The intention isn't to scare people. The intention is to shake them up a little bit and help people realize, look, we're coming off of 50 years of sleep research showing people that sleep is really important, despite everyone else saying, well, what's it even good for? Do I have to do it? And I think he's done a fantastic job showing people why sleep is important. Um, some people take it maybe a little too much to heart and they freak out about it. And then we have to say, look, you know, you're not getting Alzheimer's tomorrow, right? You know, there's lots of room and there's, there's lots of stuff you can do. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I would tell them is, is if it's causing you stress, um, where, where like, I, I think it's led many people to make great positive changes. I think there's a small subset of people who take it a little bit too much to heart and, and, and just like, you know, 
focusing on the negative sometimes can be debilitating for people. I think for some people it's, it's caused them more worry than, than not. And for those people, I would say, don't worry. If you think you have a problem with your sleep, there are sleep clinics. Come in. They'll ask you the right questions. If you've got a problem, we could probably fix it. Uh-huh. If you don't, you're okay. You know, and, and I, think, I think rather than have people sit there worried about their sleep, I think if you're really worried, come see one of us. We know what we're talking about. We can ask you the right questions and we can get this fixed. So, so I guess my take on Matt's book is I think it's actually, I actually think it's great. I um, think it's done a lot of good. I think there's a, there's, there's a few claims in there that go a little further than I personally would take them. I don't think he says anything that isn't backed up with some evidence behind it. Um, I, think, I think some of the evidence is stretched a little further than I would stretch it, but I, I don't think he's saying anything that's, or I don't think there's much in there to, to you can nitpick a, a detail or two. Like he mentioned, um, like one thing he talked about it being a World Health Organization epidemic where World Health Organization had, had led some initiatives to improve sleep, but they never used that word where like it was actually maybe on the CDC's page or whatever. Like you can nitpick some of the details, but I think the overall points in general are generally true. Yeah, I, I think it was a, a brilliantly written book. I don't add on to what you said, and it's yeah. honestly it's one of the best books I've ever um, read. And from the the standpoint of first of all, you're right, excellent communicator. The way it was written is brilliant. You know, the way he speaks, like yourself, you speak very well. People listen. You know, you're quite um, commanding in terms of how you talk, and you know the, the tonations you use, and I think the analogies and the examples. And once again, I think it's just people who, again, so focused on the weeds, even though, like you said, there might be things that are slightly out of context or stretched, the actual main message and I think the actual goal of the book was to create an awareness. And like Matthew says himself, you know, it's, it's sleep isn't sexy and it's really hard for a lot of sleep re- researchers because they're not they're not the people who are followed on Instagram. It's the models with the great physiques. And, yeah. the other. and I think that's why, you know, people like myself, I feel an obligation that even though I might have some of that influence because of the way I look and, you know, my demographic is that I can actually pull this more, you know, perhaps shaded literature and evidence into the light and say, Hey, I got you exactly. with perhaps how I, the way I looked, right. And I, I use it. I'll be open. Like my followers know that I use clickbait. Like I use my physique for good. I get you in with that. That's what gets you in. Great. But now you're here. I'm going to educate you. And I stand exactly. by that. I stand by that, you know, and I think people will be like, Oh, you know, that's not maybe the right way. And I'm like, well, ethically, like it is because I'm not like trapping them and, and then trying to sell you some, you know, something that you don't need. I'm just trying to inform you and say, hey, look, if that's what got you in, it's like people who exercise, you know, if you got into it for a vain reason because you, you know, you wanted to impress girls or, you know, you, you, you got picked on, it's like, great, but that's not the reason yeah. that will keep you going o- over time. Right. So. Yeah, I, I, I just want to back up what you said. I think that's great, and I appreciate your take on it because, again, and Matt is someone, who, is someone who I've reached out to as well. I, I think he's still on a sabbatical at the minute, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, yeah, again, 
great communicator. You can always pick things apart from the, yeah. you know, the, the, the specifics, but I know that I have, I have gifted this book to people. I have referred people onto this book purely based on the fact that it's more absorbable. I think for a lot of, you know, I hate to use the word general population, but it is and because right. of the, because of the entertainment factor and it has had a massive positive effect on their sleep and it's improved adherence with not only, you know, the coaching that I do, but also in their everyday life. So again, I, it's like the placebo. Yeah. If it works, it works, right? Well, well, not only that, it's not a textbook. It no. is a it, it is a it is a popular press book, and Correct. people who who miss the forest for the trees, I think, are missing the point. Mm -hmm. um, and the people who are reading it and and taking sleep seriously, I think, is great. If you're reading it and it's causing you stress or worry, don't be. Find one of us. Go to a sleep clinic. Ask your questions. And don't, don't, don't sit there worried. If you have a problem, we could probably fix it. Yeah. Yeah. No, 100%. And again, to back that up and, and everything we've said, we'll, we'll definitely link in those, um, you know, studies and, and, and links towards yourself, some resources, because yeah. again, it's about not just saying the whole, you know, Oh, eat healthy. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you can't <laughs> right. just, you can't just say that to people. Like it's, it's ambiguity. Like, yeah, but how, how does someone want to eat healthy? And again, it's about addressing these gray areas. So I, I'm aware of time and I know uh, yes. we're, we're coming to time, but before we sure. uh, wrap up, perhaps some, uh, we might just touch on the outliers quickly and then I have some yeah. more rapid fire, lighthearted questions, but before my final question, and we may even need a part two, because I mean, this is something that I have a growing interest in and over my career, uh, nutrition and sleep is just becoming something that I just really, really care about and find just super, super um, intricate. And I think it has such a massive correlation to, to health in general. So. So, so so very quickly about the outliers, I can answer this quickly, that mm. there's no blood test to know. There's some genes that have an increased likelihood of something or other. Mm. But, you know, right now we don't know. The most I could say is, if you're getting seven to eight hours, you don't feel like it's enough, something might be up. If you're getting five, four to five hours and you think that's totally fine, look for some of the signs that you might be wrong. If you don't see them, maybe you're fine um, unless some of those start emerging. I, I mean, we don't really have a really good way. And I'm not going to be the person that says everyone needs seven to eight hours of sleep because there's, there's nothing in the universe for that, is, that applies to every person. Uh -huh. You know, not everybody needs the same amount of protein. Not everybody needs the same amount of, you know, energy. Not everyone needs the same amount of light. You know, it's, you know, it's hard to know. There's probably a curve and there might be people on outliers of the curve. Yeah. We don't, since, we, since we don't have a test to be, to be sure, all I can say is you're probably, you know, enter the assumption that you're not an outlier, test that assumption. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, but you know, scientifically speaking, you might be, we just don't have a way to confirm it. Um, I would just say, assume from the beginning you're not and look for evidence for that. But if you don't find evidence for it, then maybe you are. Yeah. I mean, there certainly are genetics to sleep, to resilience. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people might just be more resilient for a week or two. And then, um, and then, you know, they'll suffer more of the effects. So that's how I'd answer that. Yeah, no, 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 that's great, and, and I appreciate it. Um, so, moving on to some more rapid fire and, and lighthearted questions before. Okay, we'll, I will finish out with that. Yeah, yeah. Is um, again, 
what are, I guess the first one is, what are the craziest things or fun facts, gimmicks perhaps, or, or things that people don't know about sleep that had surprised you? And it might be something quirky, it might be something simple, just over your years and research, anything that springs to mind. Um, so so something, so, something, something very quirky that's very surprising is that um, people talk about REM sleep as being very deep, but it's actually very light sleep. Your brain is very active but you're also paralyzed. You're actively paralyzed because that's when um, a lot of dreaming happens in REM sleep and otherwise we'd be acting out dreams if we weren't paralyzed. Um, so, so that's sort of a weird thing. That, that, and so when people get sleep paralysis sometimes, when they wake up out of REM sleep and their body is still kind of paralyzed, even though they're awake, um, you know, they can worry about that. But actually medically, it's probably relatively harmless. It's just you know, the state transition didn't happen very smoothly. Uh, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think there's a lot of claims on. I think that's when people think they're being abducted or aliens or spirits yeah. and stuff is, is, is a big one for that. Um, uh, the second before my last question is, um, can you identify a fear within your life that you've had? It might be small, big, that you've overcome and what you learned from it. Um, maybe, you know, one would be, you know, so the... the That's a good question. So, so one might be, you know, from, from a sleep perspective, you know, might be the fear that, um, that sleep is out of, out of my control. I mean, I live in a, a, you know, the, the world I live in, there's a lot of people who, you know, don't sleep very much, even though, even though, I mean, I, you know, I've gotten to the point where my sleep is pretty good. Um, but there, you know, there are many years of college and grad school and stuff where, where there's lots of incentives for sleeping less. There's lots of pressures. And, um, and for a long time, I, I remember years in college, for example, when I was afraid that I'd never be able to get my sleep under control. Um, but I was able to. I mean, and, and most of it was, is, is, you know, once I learned more about how it worked, I was able to do the stuff I needed to do. And the change wasn't rapid, but, but it eventually worked. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good one because I think a lot of people will, will correlate and, you know, um, sort of be able to empathize with that. And my last question, Michael, is any okay. lasting thoughts that you want to share um, that, again, it might be related to sleep, it might not be, um, that people can do to just improve their health, well-being, and lifestyle? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think a great point to end on is this idea that, that sleep is, it's a good thing. It's not, it's not about a threat. It's not about, you know, get sleep or else that it's not about a waste of time. Sleep is a good thing and it'll help you be more productive. It'll help you be more clear headed. It's giving your body what it wants to work as well as possible. And, you know, it, it just helps tip the scales in your favor. And, and when you see it as an investment rather than a cost, you know, it might change your perspective on it. Yeah, and I think that's um, a really appropriate way to uh, finish what's been a really intriguing uh, podcast and you've been very generous with your time and I really appreciate it, Michael. For those people who want to find out more about what you do and stay in contact, what and where are the best places? And of course, I will put all these in the show notes below as well, guys, for you all listening. Yeah, I mean, the, the best <laughs> thing is if you, if, if you just go to my website, michaelgrander.com, um, I've got... Um, an email list. I've got contact information on there. Um, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of um, through my website. Yeah, 
no, fantastic. And again, I'll put all those links in below, nice and simple. Uh, and once again, Michael, thank you for your time. Uh, I know I've learned a lot. I've really been looking forward to this one as well. And I think there's a lot of misfits laid and a lot of great information that people can take away from this one. So thank you again for your time. And guys, for everyone listening, make sure you like, subscribe, and of course, uh, get, leave a rating and a review on iTunes and share this around with people because I think this is something people definitely need to hear. So Michael, thank you once again for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much.